Amen. Psalm 50. Seems perhaps appropriate that if we assemble for a Thanksgiving worship service and one clan accounts for nearly half of everyone there, we, you have to host all of us. So what, to, what time is dinner being served? One more turkey ought to do it, I'm sure. Psalm 50. Let's give our attention to the reading once again of God's holy word, and we'll consider this together as we come before the Lord on this day. Psalm 50, God's Word is perfect, inerrant, infallible, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He gives it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading, a psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation 
of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us go to God uh, once more in a time of prayer as we come before his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak through your word by the power of the Spirit, open our, our ears, our minds, our hearts to these truths. May uh, your servant speak truly, speak your truth, and may human wisdom fall to the ground and be forgotten forever. And we ask that you would commission us uh, to live in light of these words, by the power of your Spirit, that we may offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my go-to news podcasts, a daily podcast that tries to kind of synthesize news from a, from a Christian perspective, it's called The, the Briefing by, uh, by Dr. Al Mohler. Oftentimes, the, the day before holidays, uh, he will give a, a Christian expression of, of the holiday in itself. How do we think about it as Christians, and how do we see some of the streams of, of the cultural tide in light of, of Scripture and the mind that God gives to us in Jesus Christ? What we find is that in times of holidays, uh, non-Christians, non-believers, uh, secular people often grasp for, for deeper meaning, uh, even as they want to keep religious expression within a very tightly defined and sealed set of parameters. So on uh, yesterday's podcast, there was attention brought to an article in the Washington Post where the headline reads like this, saying grace, colon, how a moment of thanks, religious or not, adds meaning to our meals. What you find is an article which minimally mentions God, though we can at least admire the attempts uh, that people are making to at least willfully acknowledge the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving. But what we find is that such feeble attempts, even if and some level genuine, fall, fall, fall far short of the biblical picture of thanksgiving, don't they? The biblical picture is one that sees God as so sovereign, so present, so powerful, that rendering thanksgiving and, and sacrifices of thanksgiving unto him is not only unavoidable, it's the truest expression of the heart of one who is faithful to him. If we glimpse reality through the lens of Scripture and how God reveals Himself to us, then we are left with no other choice but to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. And we see this right from the beginning of Psalm 50. So our, the first idea that we'll think through together is this. Thankfulness begins with a worshipful awareness of God's presence and power. Thankfulness begins with a worshipful awareness of God's presence and power. There's a threefold repetition of God and his name at the beginning of this psalm. The Hebrew word El, which can be a shortened form of God. Elohim, which is the general word for God or gods. And then the Lord's covenantal name, which uh, the Israelites would have said is Adonai, but we understand to be Yahweh. El, Elohim, Adonai. In other words, the message is God is present. Right from the beginning of this psalm, he is present, he is speaking, he is acting. There is no opportunity, there is no space given to deny that he is here. The setting for this psalm would have been in worship of the temple 
at a covenant renewal ceremony, most likely the Feast of Tabernacles or, or the Feast of Booths. This for use in the temple. So it would have been read in the presence of God's people in the context of worship. And that's what worship is, isn't it? It's coming into the presence of God. And uh, many of the things about worship, the trappings of worship, the, 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 the circumstances of worship, the settings of worship are often given to remind you that God is present. The, the pulpit is elevated to give you that sense that, that this word is coming to you from a place of authority, not because the heart or the wisdom or the mind of the human speaker, but because God has chosen to reveal himself, his glory, and his call through human servants. Not only in God's presence do we see his power on display, but the breadth of the summons that he gives. He, he summons all of the world, as we see, all the earth in verse 1. And then he calls upon heaven and earth to bear witness to this covenant renewal ceremony. So if God's people are coming into his presence to renew his covenant, then there are to be witnesses for that ceremony, and thus all of heaven and earth are called uh, to bear witness. There's an aspect in the beginning of this psalm, the first six verses, uh, in God's presence and power that appeals to our senses. He is uh, appealing to those things to give an impression of how present he is and how powerful he is. God is called the perfection of beauty in verse 2, which calls us uh, it calls on us to consider anything beautiful. What, what is something that you see as beautiful? Consider those things and then consider that God is the perfection of beauty. He is the superlative of every good thing. He is the most high. He is most wise. He is the most glorious and the most good. We heard our choir sing a wonderful hymn for the beauty of the earth. And in some versions of that, it culminates in the final verse, to thyself best gift divine. The earth may be beautiful, and certainly at the time of harvest and fall time, you see the, the changing colors, you see the, the wonderful leaves on the tree, and you're reminded not only of, of God's sovereignty over the changing seasons, but just his, his, the, the tapestry of beauty that he has put into this world. So you look around, and you see many beautiful things. And then even the joys of human love, as the song says. There are many things that we look around and we see beauty in all the things that God has made. But the beauty of the earth serves to remind us of what? That God is the perfection of beauty. There is nothing more beautiful than God. There is nothing more beautiful than, than Jesus Christ, our, our glorious Savior. He stands alone. In verses 1 and 2, there's something else that allows us to see God's power on display. God's summons goes out at sunrise and, and sunset, but he is also, as we read there in verse 2, the God who shines forth. So you have sunrise, sunset, God who is shining forth, which connects in the hearer's mind the times of the day where the rays of the sun hit the earth most directly or palpably. That connects to God himself. He didn't have a clear morning uh, this morning, but oftentimes November morning and Thanksgiving kind of burned in my memory. Oftentimes you would, you would get up and it would be a slower morning and you would see the rays of sunshine coming through the window, undeniable of the, the, the power of the sun and the direct way that those rays of sunshine hit the earth. Well, God is like that ray of sunshine on a clear morning. That's, the, that's what he is saying to us in the beginning of this psalm. If you have eyes to see, 
If you have the faith that Scripture prescribes for us and calls us to, God's presence will not be denied. And it is those who attend to it who are the faithful ones. It's possible that God's people would have assembled in the temple while it was still dark or just as the sun was rising. And this psalm would have been read at the beginning of that covenant renewal ceremony, which would have lasted for most of the day, that this psalm would have been read right as the sun was rising. And that, of course, lays the groundwork for the, the rest of the day of renewal ceremonies. Would have been likely, again, used at the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of, of Booths. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. His summons serves as a distinct purpose for the remainder of the day, the day of worship. In verse 5, our English translations will almostly say that the faithful ones are those who made a covenant with God. But what is likely being communicated here is that God summons his people to this occasion as those who are about to make a covenant with him. It actually has a, a, a future tense to that, uh, to that phrase. It's those who are about to make a covenant, about to renew the covenant. And that's why there's such a big deal made with all of this, this summoning. Summon all the world, the people of God, heaven and earth to bear witness. This is in many ways meant to be like Sinai, Mount Sinai, where God first made the covenant with his people, formed that covenant after he redeemed them out of Egypt. The significance of all of that, what happened at Sinai, God's people palpably felt God's presence. And so what were they doing at that time? They, they were trying to hide themselves. They were telling Moses, you go and you deal with God. We, we don't want to be in the presence of his power this way. People hide themselves because they feel God's unworthiness, don't they? God was present in a special way at Sinai. Wherever God is present, men feel their sins and their inadequacies in greater measure. Of course, there's a sense of awe, feeling of gravity of the moment as God's people renew their covenant relationship with the God of, of the universe. And since he sits as judge, as the righteous judge, as verse 6 says, it brings to the forefront that all of these proceedings have within them a searching preparatory ritual. God's people are called to examine themselves as to whether they are counted among the faithful or whether they would be counted among the wicked, which is how the rest of this psalm breaks down. So though people try to live life without God, we see that all throughout our world, don't we? Suppressing the truth of his power and presence, God still ever lives as the supreme judge and Lord of all. Men try to forget him. But those who have eyes to see recognize his presence and his power. And that is the beginning of thanksgiving because when you sense the presence of God in the world, in your life, in all things, when you see his supremacy as God and judge and Lord of all, you begin with that place of a sense of unworthiness, of feeling uh, directly the effect of your sin in the presence of his holiness. So on a day like today, what's one of the uses of a day like Thanksgiving? Well, you have time to reflect upon God's presence and power. You have time to reflect upon the fact that though in the daily grind of your life you may forget him, you may tend to forget him, it's on a day like today where you can refresh yourself in remembering him.
and remembering his presence and his power. We also see then in the next section, verses 7 through 15, that thanksgiving is the essence of the law. It's all pointing us to this call, that to serve God in faithfulness to his call is to serve God from a heart of thanksgiving. So God addresses his people in verses 7 through 15, and then in verses 16 through 23, God addresses the wicked. Now, it's possible that God's people would have been assembled in in a way kind of like this, with the congregation sort of split into two halves, and that would have symbolized God speaking on the one hand to his faithful ones, and on the other hand to the wicked. They would have been separated. The implicit communication would have been to heed God's call in order to be counted among the faithful. It's not as if they were saying, okay, you look wicked, so you sit over here, right? That would have been mean to our visitors this morning but the implicit communication is in God's people uh, in in the in the, the group of God's people themselves there are those who are faithful and yet those who have a, a superfluous veneer of religiosity that does not have the heart of faithfulness and repentance and service towards God so do so to be sitting in the presence of God's people there is that reminder to seek God in the way that he calls us to Don't convince yourself that you are right with God if you do not have the heart that he commands you to have. That's really the essence of of preaching and all proclamation, isn't it? This psalm sets before us the ultimate and great truth that human beings fall on one or other side of the ledger. There is no middle ground with all whom God has created. The preaching of God's word and the preaching of Jesus Christ bring the future of the final day to the present. That's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of the final day, that great day when we will all stand before our Creator to show men that one day this is how things will be divided, not into many factions. On the day of judgment, there will not be tiny little cell groups and all kinds of little caucuses and little groups of, of loyalties. There will be two great Groups And one division alone, those who have taken refuge in God and his mercy through Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace, and those who have forgotten him and have not laid hold to receive the salvation that he offers. One day, all human beings will not sit before a pulpit. They will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, all will be made clear. And what will matter on that day is whether we were in the covenant of grace which God makes with his people through Jesus Christ. So make sure, take time to make sure that you have sought this refuge while you have time. Come to Christ, trust in him, in faith and repentance, and find salvation and life in his name. The second section of this psalm, verses 7 through 15, challenge God's people to notice something about the worship of God, that we do not bring sacrifices to God because he needs them. He does not stand before us as as a needy God, but rather sacrifice puts on display that we are in possession of what we need to have. Those who offer right sacrifices unto God are those who offer sacrifices unto God with a pure heart that is tuned to the glory of God, that seeks Him from a heart of thanksgiving. 
Verses 8 through 13 drive this point home in sweeping fashion. If the Old Testament Israelites made sacrifices because they thought it gave to God something that he desperately needed, then they vastly understood the whole system of sacrifice. God's storehouses are always full, aren't they? He needs nothing because he already has everything. Before he created the world, he was fully sufficient in himself, in the unending joy and fellowship at the communion of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, all three persons, fully God, fully content, fully complete. God already has everything, even if we think about relative to the world, it's all his anyways, and so he reminds us that in this psalm, the beasts, the cattle on a thousand hills, the birds that fly, everything that moves in the field, all the tiny little creatures in the world, it all belongs to God. Later today, when the table is spread, you have a big feast laid out before you, Right as you're sitting down, what, what would it be if someone were to say, you know, I saw a couple of uh, TV dinners in the freezer. Why don't I go and, and uh, heat those up in the microwave? I'll zap those. I'll bring those out. And any of you who need that, that's, that's what you can have, right? If you're part of a sane family, they're going to say, what are you talking about? We don't need it. We have, a, we have an entire feast laid out before us. Brings to mind the, the truth, the reality of, of God in his sufficiency. He does not need anything that we bring. If you think you impress God, or if you think you complete him with the money that you give to him, with the religious rituals that you go through, even with the hours that you log doing work at church or serving others or being on committees or doing any kinds of things, and all of which are great when they come from a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude and humble reliance upon God's grace. But if you think that any of those things give to God some advantage that he would not otherwise have, then you have it all wrong. If you think the kingdom of God can only go forward with you, then you've misunderstood the God of Scripture. If you make God out to be a deity who gets hungry, in other words, or thirsty, then you've misunderstood him. He's self-sufficient in himself, and that brings us to a focal point of this psalm. God does not need anything of human production, and he does not want it if you bring it with the wrong attitude. He doesn't want your money, your service, if you're bringing it thinking that he needs that from you. But there is something that God does want, doesn't it? Isn't there? There is something that God delights in, that brings him great joy, that is pleasing, and that he uses then not only to receive for his glory, but to minister unto us. What is it that God wants? A heart of thanksgiving. Psalm 69, verse 30 says this I will praise the name of God with a song, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. God wants a heart of thanksgiving. He wants faithfulness that looks to him, that has glimpsed reality, that has seen our own need and the grace that he gives, how much we desperately need him, and he wants a heart that recognizes that and praises him because of it, because we have desperate need of him. And he wants a heart that knows that. 
Thanksgiving is the only proper response of the heart which has glimpsed reality. If you have glimpsed reality through the lens of Scripture, you will have a heart of thanksgiving. And that explains why God desires that heart of thanksgiving, why He takes such joy in His servants who come to Him with a heart filled with thanksgiving. Because He wants us to know things that are true. He wants us to see the world the way that it actually is. Not to live by the lie of self-sufficiency or self-reliance, self-contentment, self-fulfillment, thinking that you can do things, you can do it all yourself, you don't need any help. Those who landed in Plymouth, I believe this is the 400th anniversary of kind of that first Thanksgiving, those who landed in Plymouth Colony knew uh, that God had brought them there. And there was a, a sense of they made this very dangerous journey and thus they're filled with joy when, uh, when they land there. William Bradford writes this, Being thus arrived in a good harbor brought safe to land, they, the pilgrims, fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. They come out of the boat, and what's the first thing they do? They fall to their knees, and they praise God because they say, it's only by God's providential hand that we have been brought here. Similarly, those who would have made it through the, the first harsh winter there, and a lot of those early settlements, the, the, the fatality rate was extremely high. And so you make it through, you don't die of sickness or starvation or cold, and what do you do? You fall on your knees. There is a, there is a palpable sense of God's presence in your life. Abraham Lincoln wrote wonderful things about Thanksgiving around the time of the Civil War, his 1863 Thanksgiving proclamation, very, very special one to read. And uh, everyone knew that it needed to be by God's providential hand that they would survive, that, that the United States would survive that time. That's the kind of heart that God wants us to have. Do you recognize his hand in all things? The air that you breathe is there because of God's providential hand. Every breath you are showing reliance upon things that you cannot cause to be there yourself. There's a lie of self-sufficiency. There's a lie of self-sufficiency in this world. There's a lie of self-sufficiency that wells up from the corruption that is in our hearts. And there is perhaps nothing that is more foul to God's eyes, more ignorant of the truth, than one who believes that he is self-made, self-reliant, self-sufficient. You may work very hard, for the things that you have. But you were born into a world that had a developed economy that allowed you to be rewarded for your hard work. You may put food on the table, but when you place your hand on something, on the shelves at the grocery store, you are the recipient of a, a global supply chain. We've been made aware of that this year, but you are the recipient of uh, the, the end of a global supply chain that constantly moves without you even thinking about it. You may even work and till the ground for the food you eat. We have a whole movement of, of people wanting to get back to that homesteading, growing your own food, being self-sufficient. You may work the ground for the food you eat, but often it's farmers who most often feel their own frailty and helplessness as they consider the harvest that's brought in, right? No matter how much effort they put forth, they can work sunrise to sundown every day of the week, 
hopefully six days of the week, but maybe six days of the week, sunrise to sundown, they can work till their hands are bloody and they have nothing left to give. But what might still happen? You might have a drought. There might be a disaster that sweeps through. You may have locusts come and set themselves upon your crops. The rain might not fall. There might not be enough nutrients in the soil. The sun might not shine. The point is to remember God. Remember Him. Don't buy into the lie of self-sufficiency. Adopt a posture of thanksgiving, not a secular gratitude without God. There was an article in the, in the Atlantic a few years ago, the Atlantic magazine, and it was called Gratitude Without God. Don't adopt a posture of gratitude without God. The only way that it makes sense is if God is at the end of your gratitude, understanding that it all comes from Him. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And finally, uh, there is this. Those who forget God live, great, live ungrateful lives of wickedness. Those who forget God live ungrateful lives of, of wickedness. God addresses the wicked beginning in verse 16. The danger of the heart of self-sufficiency is that it finds expression in in wickedness. These are those who have disregard for God's word. They may take his name upon their lips, but they have a heart that is ungrateful. God rebukes them. They live lives that are defiant of God's law. We see breaking of the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments in this psalm. Romans chapter 1, we see this exact picture where there is a description of various sins, gross sins, that are defiant of God's created order. The Apostle Paul describes those uh, wicked sinners in this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Those who are ungrateful, those who forget God. Romans 1 goes on to say their foolish hearts are darkened and they live these lives of wickedness. But what emerges from the second part of this psalm, or the last part of this psalm, is not that God simply calls out their hypocrisy and wipes them off the face of the earth. That's not the way that this functions, is it? Remember, the, the congregation of God's people would have been assembled. They all hear this read. There is a, a call to the faithful to not forget God and offer to God a sac sacrifice of thanksgiving. But then there is this rebuke towards the wicked. And how does it function? Not as a sentencing and an execution, but rather as an opportunity. Indeed, if the last part of this psalm is rightly understood, it's an invitation. An invitation to what? An invitation to repentance. The wonderful picture that emerges is that both sides of the sanctuary, those who uh, are the faithful on the one hand and the wicked on the other, can both enjoy the blessedness of God's covenant grace and mercy. But those who would be numbered with the wicked, those who have had lives that can be characterized as forgetful of God, as ungrateful, as unwicked, must give themselves deeply to the call of repentance. Verse 21, now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, you who forget God, 
lest I tear you apart. See, God does not say, I will tear you apart in judgment. He says, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Implying, of course, that there is one to deliver. It is the God in whom you seek refuge through repentance. See your sin. See the way that you have forgotten God. See the way that you have bought into the lie of self-sufficiency. See the way that you have lacked the heart of thanksgiving that God rejoices in. Give yourself to repentance, the God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Renew yourself as the covenant is renewed. Give yourself to him and he will save you. God is not torn apart yet. Deliverance is still held out. Repentance involves turning, isn't it? It's a a turn of your whole life from self-sufficiency to complete reliance, and that is what the wicked are called to do. So turn from your thinking that you can navigate life on your own. Leave your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance behind. God says, you who have forgotten me, remember me. Remember his power. Remember his providence. Remember his provision. But don't just do it with reference to external things. Remember God first with reference to what he gives to you spiritually. Thanksgiving is is a nice illustration because in this part of the world and how blessed we are and the abundance that we have, we sit before this, this abundant feast, most Americans do. And when we sit before that, it is a picture to remind us that God has given so abundantly, so richly, so immeasurably more than we could have imagined in Jesus Christ. The riches that he gives to us in, his, in our prophet and priest and king are immeasurable, incalculable, wonderful. Everything that you have in this life pales in comparison to what God gives to you in Jesus Christ. The intricate care given to this renewal ceremony in Psalm 50 shows how important it is to be in proper covenant fellowship with God. That's what he wants from his people. He wants to be joined in joyful, grace-filled fellowship with his people. And how do we do that? By trusting in the Son that God has given to wash away our sins. And if we see Jesus Christ as the perfection of beauty, as the one in whom alone we have life and health and happiness and prosperity and contentment, if we do all of those things, we will have the heart of thanksgiving because we will see and know the one who has faith is the one who is like at Sinai running from the presence of God and saying, Moses, you need to go and speak for us. But the heart of faith is the one who says, only Christ can go and appear before God on my behalf. And as I trust in him, I stand in him. And the blessedness of the gospel is that God causes me to stand before his presence because of his son. And he becomes the greatest joy of our souls. Samuel Rutherford says this, that Christ is all the heaven I want. Christ is all the heaven I want. He is the deepest desire and joy of our souls. If Christ is at the center of the scriptures... Thanksgiving needs to be at the center of our hearts. That's what God wants from us. And so we close by considering two things that we can draw from from this truth in this psalm. The first is this. Thanksgiving results in a heart that performs vows and orders its way rightly. Verse 14. 
end in verse 23. Thanksgiving results in a heart that performs vows and orders its way rightly. You have a heart that rejoices in Christ, you will serve God. Not because your own righteousness merits anything before God, but because of the heart of thanksgiving that you have. And then finally this, God hears the prayers of the thankful. Verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's a promise that's given to the faithful, to the ones who have sought refuge in God, to the ones who have thankful hearts. If you want deliverance, if you want your prayers to be heard, then begin with the kind of repentance that leaves all self-sufficiency behind. You will be living the way that you are meant to live for the glory of God. That's the promise that God makes to the thankful in verse, 13, in verse 15. You shall glorify me. Robert Murray McShane said this, the heart filled with thanksgiving is both evidence of Christ's glory and the landing place of Christ's glory. If you're thankful from your heart, you give evidence to God's glory, but you're also the landing place of God's glory. So live in thankfulness, for that is what all of Scripture points us to, and that is how we live the way that we were made to live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. We do ask that you would create in us hearts of thanksgiving, thankfulness, that we may live for your glory, that you may hear our prayers, and that we may live uh, in all things, wanting to serve you out of the gratitude that uh, that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give you all the glory and thanks and praise for his sake and his name. Amen. We'll stand together. We'll sing verses 1, 3, and 4 of number 715. 1, 3, and 4, come ye thankful people, come.